you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go all the way, you will experience a peace and a freedom beyond imagining. So what is he talking about? We can kind of intuit it. There's a sense of understanding it, but it's still a mystery. Letting go is a mystery. So tonight I want to talk about this quality of letting go and how we might work with it in our daily life and in our meditation. Most people here by now, the year 2001 at Spit Rock, have heard this story. But it's one of the things, it's very traditional to hear it over and over, which is after the Buddha's enlightenment, a couple weeks or so, he gave his first Dharma talk, which is known as the first great turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And he was completely enlightened. He could have said anything. He could have gone, he was talking to just a handful of friends. He could have talked about these amazing, sublime realms and the devas and the deities. He could have, he could have described anything. He was aware of everything, basically. So what did he say? I mean, most people here know the first noble truth from the great enlightened one who could say anything. He said, my friends... This life is filled with suffering. Interesting. The first thing. And that word suffering and is often also translated as dissatisfaction. And he said if you look closely, if you pay attention, you'll see this quality of either suffering or dissatisfaction almost everywhere. He... Um, he knew that we didn't have to just look at, you know, the AIDS orphans in Africa or the inner cities and all the uh, racism and all the horrible stuff that's going on out somewhere else. But right here in beautiful, quiet, Monday night spirit rock, right here inside of our own heart, there is this quality of suffering. And he wanted us to... He wanted us to see that. And I've thought, and a lot of people have thought about, I wonder why that was the first noble truth of everything he could have said. And one of the things I've thought about in that is that if you really want to be free of something, you have to see it. If you don't understand it, if you don't see it, it can sneak up on you and basically run your life. And once we start seeing what this quality that the Buddha is talking about, once we start seeing it clearly, we see that it is basically running our world. This craving, this dissatisfaction, this grasping, grasping for something else. The, um, you might be sitting here on Monday night where there's, it's, the sittings can get very quiet here. And... You might be finally experiencing, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. This is what I've been looking for, this deep, quiet, peaceful. Ah, and you're sitting calmly, resting in this open expanse, and then this little part of you goes, how can I make this last? You know, I don't ever want this to end. And that little, subtle grasping or striving would be 
under the category of dissatisfaction or suffering compared to the great peace of being that the Buddha was resting in, the, the point of view from which he was speaking. So he goes on to the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering. He's talked about old age, sickness, death, um, as part of our life, but he said that's not the cause of the suffering. The cause of the suffering is that we attempt to grasp the ungraspable. We try to hold on to something for our happiness and security that's impermanent, like I can only be happy if it's always this temperature, but not 90 or 100 like it was earlier. Grasping on to how it has to be. Or I I can only be happy if I always look 20. You know, good luck. Actually, with that in mind, I have this. this, uh, One of our Sangha members was published in the Chronicle. She did an essay on the, the woes of interviewing roommates in Marin County. This time, our candidate was a wiry, hostile woman named Naomi, shellacked with makeup, who jogged up our steps wearing a skin-tight spandex bodysuit and illuminated wrist weights. Throughout our meeting, she steadily flexed and straightened her arms so as not to squander valuable workout time. (laughs) What do you do, Naomi? We asked her. Well, these days, she said, I'm mainly doing my butt. (laughs) What? Once you pass 35, if you let your butt go for a minute, you might as well just pull over the side of the road and die. (laughs) That would come under the category of suffering. (laughs) Suffering. Nature, Nature has these cycles, you know. It's summer, it's all hot, and then it's winter. The, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. The moon is full, the moon is small. There's all these cycles which we live with in nature, somewhat, depending on how hot it gets. But a lot of the cycles, the expansions and contractions of nature, we, we, we're with. But if we have a contraction, if we are feeling dense and kind of dull and tight, it's like an emergency. You know what I mean? Like, oh... What have I done wrong? It's my fault. I'm a bad person. How long will it last? Which remedy should I take? This whole thing. If we have a, if we have a contraction. And the Buddha is pointing us to a possibility that we can begin to open to the expansions and contractions of our life in the same way we can open to the waxing and the waning of a moon. Ah, This is life. And that resisting life as it is, is suffering. That's the second noble truth. Fighting how it is creates suffering. I, um... (laughs) The Buddha... One of the reasons that I became interested in the teachings of the Buddha was that he said, um, don't take my word for this. He said, now, I've told you this thing that I've found out. Now you look. Look into your own life. Look into your... Do you suffer? Now, what is the cause of your suffering? And what ends your suffering? 
And he would always reflect it back. What is, you find out what's true for you. So I have sometimes thought in my many, many years as a psychotherapist and a couples counselor, there's been many, many people who would have said, well, because of my suffering is obviously, you know, my ex-husband. There's no doubt about it in many people's mind. But um, I remember, actually vividly remember, being long ago, I think it was like 27 or so years ago, I've lost count at this point, I was a young adult at a meditation, my first Vipassana meditation retreat out at Yucca Valley. And um, I was suffering. It's called dukkha. I was having dukkha. I was in a lot of physical pain because I was over-efforting. And about the third night, somebody gets up and gives this talk about the Four Noble Truths. And I'm sitting there looking, you know, like a little Buddha, you know, way too tight so that my whole neck and shoulders are in agony. I look fine about it on the outside, but inside I was so cynical about what this teacher was saying. And I was sitting there going, sure, this man, first of all, 2,500 years ago, comes up with this first noble truth of suffering. Then he invents this practice to prove he's right. (laughs) to put me through this, you know, and put us all through this torture. You know, this was actually, this this is my resistance. I should say by the end of that retreat, I was completely hooked for life, but that was what I was going through to to get there. (laughs) Fortunately, the Buddha goes on to the third noble truth, which is my favorite, but it wouldn't be anything without the first two. And he says... um, Even here, in this plane of existence, with all this impermanence and loss, this change, this grief, this suffering, freedom is possible. That's a beautiful teaching. And he said, if it is this tight, grasping fist that creates the suffering, then it's this letting go, opening, that creates the freedom. Freedom is possible in letting go. He um, did go on to the fourth noble truth, which is a very big topic, and it deserves several Dharma talks, which I'll just tell you, I'm not going to go into tonight, but the fourth noble truth lays out the teaching of what's called the middle way, um, where the Buddha laid out a whole way of life that leads to awakening, which included wisdom, ethical conduct, and meditation. But for tonight, I'm really going to focus in on um, this third noble truth about freedom is possible in letting go. Freedom is possible as we learn to open to life rather than close. Um, Some years ago, I had a, a bona fide inner guidance. It wasn't just one of those little things. It actually felt a guidance, which I don't know. I couldn't say that I always feel this, but this time I did, to go to India and see Punjaji, a great, great teacher. And I um, have some illness, some chronic illness problems, and the last thing I wanted to do was go to India where most everybody gets some sort of sickness or several sicknesses. So, but the guidance was so clear that I did this gigantic pilgrimage across, you know, the great giant airplane ride and then the, this unbelievable train ride across India that would be hours of stories, just this train ride. <coughs> then this taxi ride 
which, you know, to call that a taxi was, is pushing it, but this, I was in some sort of motorized vehicle <laughs> spewing out all this black uh, smog and, and, and just careening through unbelievable forms of traffic and ox and, you know, all these things. Then I'm in the rickshaw, and finally I'm there. I'm, I'm sitting, you know, 15 feet away from Punjaji. You know, I'm in total jet lag, <laughs> and, but I'm there. And um, it took me actually three days to get the courage to actually go up to have the darshan. There was maybe 75 or 100 people there in this place where we met with him. And he was sitting on a little riser, sort of the same height as this. And then the person who would go up to talk to him would come and sit right, right about there. So I finally got there, got the courage up. And inside, you know, I'm like, oh my God, I'm about to talk to Punjaji, you know, this person who I've heard everything about. He has this extraordinary transmission of, of truth and freedom. He's completely psychic. He sees everything about you. He says these profound things to people. They have these amazing realizations. Oh my God, what's going to happen to me? You know, so was, and um, I'm sitting there, and he leans over, and he's twinkling at me. And I'm looking into his eyes, and it's like looking right into the universe. But the universe had a sense of humor and was sort of giggling and completely compassionate. So there's this universe of complete compassionate giggle looking at me. And he says, Deborah, relax. <laughs> the great esoteric message from the master. Deborah relax. <laughs> and then he, he went on to say, oh, he looks at me all twinkly, he says, you're already free. And at that moment, I remember <coughs> two things happening, something kind of going inside of me, the other thing, my mind going, oh my God, I, this is way too advanced for me. <laughs> I'm never going to get this. God, you know, I don't get it. But, but after a few days of being in his indescribable presence, um, I, did, I did understand what he was pointing to. It, it's the grace of being in the presence of a being like that. Or he's able to give you the experience that he was teaching. He's really saying that all of our efforting and trying and striving and worrying and all that just adds yet another layer to the separate self that divides us, that separates us from the deep essence of being. So, if it was really that easy, we would all, you know, be at the beach today or somewhere else. We wouldn't be coming to meditation class or retreats and all the things that we do. Um, what Punjaji said is completely true, yet in order to really rest in our deepest nature, we have to have what's called the mind of non-clinging. We have to completely have the capacity to let go under every circumstance. And that is a rather steep uh, assignment. So fortunately, there have been these great teachers and masters who come along and offer us practices that help us learn and cultivate this ability to let go so that we can eventually really understand what Punjit was talking about. 
So the practice that the Buddha offered us to really learn this in an ongoing way is mindfulness, the main practice that we teach here at Spirit Rock. And in the mindfulness practice, first we come completely present. We learn to arrive here in this moment. And then we see what is so right now. And whatever that may be, we learn to meet with clarity and simultaneously with kindness. So for instance, you may be um, sitting, meditating, and you might think, well, I want to go see a great teacher in India. Well, I want to actually go see Punjaji. You know, I've heard stories about Punjaji. I want to go too. And then you think, oh, but he's dead. Bummer. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't make it. Darn, I really wanted to go. And you start whipping him. I really, you know, I don't hurt no, anybody else quite like him. And then you remember, oh, yes, I'm meditating. <laughs> this moment, the precision the, of what's called wisdom simply sees what is so. Which simply goes, oh, this is grasping. This is wanting. That's the quality that's present. And simultaneously, the quality of kindness says, oh, it's wanting. Not like, oh, I'm bad for wanting, or I'm guilty for wanting, just, ah, there's that happening. This, this wisdom has in it the quality of investigation that actually goes, oh, isn't this interesting? There's this huge storm of wanting going on in this space right now. You can be curious, you can be present, you can be interested. And at the same time, allowing, accepting. So, genuine letting go is not repression. And it's not some sort of um, resignation, sort of flat giving up. And it's not getting rid of something. The whole idea, I'll get rid of this desire or that. It's not that. Letting go is this opening, a deep and profound opening and releasing in the heart and the mind. So we talk in spiritual life about letting go. And you may ask, well, what are we actually talking about letting go of? You know, our social responsibility, car payment maybe? It would be really nice if we were talking about that. Should we all go wandering through San Rafael with our begging bowls? You know, is that what the Buddha is recommending? And you know, if that would do it, we would all be down there with the begging bowls. But even that isn't a guarantee. Some people are called to uh, an outer renunciation, And if you're really called to that, then it's important for some people to follow the way of outer renunciation. But this freedom that the Buddha is speaking of in the Third Noble Truth ultimately comes through inner letting go, the inner renunciations. And what we're ultimately letting go of are the identifications with who we thought we were and how we thought it should all turn out. 
in this letting go, we're letting go of our grasping to all the notions of who who we take ourselves to be. So I'll give you a, a really corny and stereotypical example of what I'm talking about. This is very corny. Um, Susie's secretary says, I'm a really good person, I'm a nice person, I work really hard, I, work, I help everybody else and nobody helps me. Okay, that's like the codependent stereotype. Or like, I'm, I'm Norma, neurosurgeon, I'm really smart, I'm really fast, I know much more than everybody else. Okay, so you can just feel, you can feel these are just roles, these are personality identifications. They're not in any way the deep description of who we really are. That's what I'm talking about. And there's nothing wrong with being the neurosurgeon or the secretary and all of that, except for the secretary is probably unhappy with her situation. Um, But to the degree that we completely identify with our personality, our outer shell, to the degree we hold on tight to that and defend it and protect it, we suffer. Because that whole personality is impermanent. It doesn't provide any sort of deep, genuine security or happiness. And again, there's nothing wrong. In fact, you know, you want to have a personality. They're very useful, especially for getting a job or something. But, um, <laughs> but when we're completely locked in to the outer part of ourself, we miss the deep beauty and the vastness of who we really are. I was co-leading a group in Oakland uh, some years ago on racism and diversity. And in the group, there was uh, sort of a lot of extraordinary people in that group. But this one woman, an African-American woman, was very dynamite, strong, um, tough, brilliant woman, dynamic woman, who... um, was director of a national agency, had been on the front line of working, fighting, not just working, fighting for her community for decades. You know, she, she grew up in the South in the late 40s and the early 50s, so you can, you can kind of feel this woman. And one day she surprised everyone in the whole group. Um, this was like a year and a half into a lot of very, very deep work that we'd done together. And she said something that none of us would have expected her to say. She said, uh, I see that at this point in my life, the most radical thing I could do, the most radical act for me right now, would be to have a happy life. It's really, it was an amazing moment. She went on to say, The conditioning that I have received growing up black in the South, the conditioning from this culture, from this world, the conditioning that happened to my great-great-grandparents who were slaves, my great-grandparents who lived in poverty and struggled every day of their life to be at the very bottom. My parents struggled every day to be at the bottom. She said the conditioning, the messages I have 
which say, I am someone who gets to struggle and be unhappy. Those are such strong messages. But she said, I know it is not the essential truth of who I am, and I am going to find that. She's a woman, like now her fighter energy was ready to fight for the, this next kind of freedom. And she's so uh, extraordinary, she's well on her way. She's really quite a woman. One of my teachers once said, some of the most important and the hardest work that you will ever do is to let go of your suffering. And he went on to say, but what else is there to do with your life? What else? (coughs) We can either hold on to our suffering, suffer more, or we can practice seeing it and letting go. So we can say, well, how, you know, how do I go about this letting go of these layers of conditioning, these layers of identifications, false identifications, you know, without making them bad? Each moment that we meet with mindfulness, where there's a moment, whether it's a moment of a wandering mind or a sore knee or whatever it is, where we just meet it without grasping, without aversion, where we open to this moment of experience as it is, is letting go. It is doing the work of letting go of those identifications because we're not tied up in how it's supposed to be. We're not reinforcing that. Uh, I had a friend, and there's other people in the room here who knew her. Um, Her name was Chica. And she died a few years ago. Um, she's about my age. And she died of breast cancer. She was a dear, beautiful friend, completely committed to her spiritual journey, traveling and teaching around the country, you know, beautiful, funny, alive person. And um, she, like anybody who deals with, with dying of a of an illness like the like cancer, she had to go through so much letting go. And for her, one of the main areas where she just had to let go and let go was letting go of control. Um, and she knew that. And she was funny. She was always making jokes about this letting go of control thing. And we would laugh because for her, it, you know, it was a really big thing. So as she was getting, it was about three months before she died, she had this tumor in her throat. So she talked with a raspy voice and so we had to sort of lean forward to hear her and she said I have a joke and we said okay and so she said and you've heard this because it's an old joke but she says how do you make God laugh and and she said tell him your plans (laughs) and then she would laugh she would just laugh and laugh because she got the joke you know she really got the joke she really got the joke so Chica was such a teacher to us because she taught us that letting go doesn't have to be heavy and grim, that in fact it can include a lot of laughing and crying and more laughing. She was really an incredible teacher. So we can see that um, letting go is a central task in spiritual journey. 
And, but we also see, even in one sitting, you can see that you can't just make it happen. You can't just go, whoop, you know, flip the switch. Well, there. So I was thinking about over all these years and all the various teachers that I have been really fortunate to be with, um, what were a few of the most important or valuable um, tips teachings that I've been given along the way about what helps to let go. So there's, I came up with four that have been the most helpful for me personally. The first one is that I have found that the best place to actually practice and experience letting go is through the body. That even right now, sitting here, you can take your attention to your shoulder or into your belly and you can notice, is there any tension? And then let it go. Everybody right now, just notice anything in your body that's tight and just see what it's like to let go. Soften your belly. Relax your jaw. It's an incredible practice, isn't it? Because you can feel it. You can... Um, Practice it anytime, anywhere. And the more you practice it, the more your body and mind are learning this art of letting go. Stephen Levine says, the practice of softening through the body is the physical act of letting go, which accompanies the mental act of release, a physical trigger for a mental phenomena that reminds the body of the opportunity for peace. Softening the hardness, we white flag the war. I was... The last, that last phrase? Softening the hardness, we white flag the war. That's very Stephen Levine. If you know Stephen, that's his sort of way he, he talks. He actually writes books in that sort of language. It's somewhere between poetry and prose and off the cliff. Um, I was, you know, I fly a lot because we Dharma teachers go around and teach retreats all over the place. And I was flying into Albuquerque. And if you've ever flown in there, there's these big, steep mountains. And it can be very, very turbulent. And... Um, and I'd experienced that many times without dying already. So when it started happening really intensely in this one particular flight, maybe more intensely than I'd ever experienced, I wasn't completely terrified, but I noticed these women near me were. They were like turning these different shades of green and yellow and white in their knuckles, you know. And I, um, then I noticed in my own body that I was completely tight. And I sort of thought, well, you know, it's as though I'm trying to hold this airplane up in the air with my stomach muscles, you know. <laughs> and, and there was something in me that thought, I can't let go, you know. But then I thought, it probably won't crash if I try this here, you know. <sighs> Relax. So I softened. What was so interesting for me is that when I relaxed, I suddenly looked at those women and I felt all this kindness and compassion for them that I hadn't felt three seconds before because I was in my own tightness. And then I just sat and did metta for them. 
It's such an important thing to learn that we can practice this in our body, and then we let go in our body, we have, our mind will follow. Thousands of times a day we can do that. So that was the first point. The second point uh, was, is a teaching by a man who has been so important to my journey, as well as Jack Cornfield. He's Hamid Amas, who actually, who's, Jack um, dedicated a path with heart to Hamid. That gives you a feeling. He's been a teacher for Jack and for me. And, um, Hamid once said, in the genuine spiritual journey, you cannot escape the process of being stripped of false identities. But this process does not have to be agonizing. If you know that this is the process of awakening, and it's not a mistake, you did not do anything wrong, you are not to blame. It's a really different way to look at our experience. Oh, this is actually how it works. Oh, we let go of these things that we held dearly. Ah, it hurts when we let go. Ah, this is the process of awakening. The pain that we feel around letting, the letting goes of our life is actually the resistance to letting go. It's the pain of holding on. But when, and everybody knows this, when we finally really let go, it's relief. It's the resistance where the suffering happens. It's the third noble truth, again and again. And it's a moment-by-moment thing. We all know this. It's not like there's one big let go. There's billions of these. Another one. So the third point on this little list is about trust and patience. I love roses. I grow roses. And sometimes something special happens, like somebody's getting married that day or somebody had a baby and I really want to take them a very special, beautiful rose. I've got to my garden, and there's all these little hard green buds. And there's nothing I can do to convince them to bloom on that day. I cannot force the rose to just open. I can water it. I can give it its fertilizer, which I give it all this organic. Come on, baby. It's just in its own timing. The roses are going to unfold when they're ready. And, of course, the metaphor here is quite obvious. We cannot force our own opening. We cannot force our own unfolding. What we can do is that we can take responsibility for putting ourselves in the conditions that are most conducive to, most supportive of the opening. Just like I would water the rose... I would make sure the rose has the sunlight. Well, for ourselves, we come to meditation class, we listen to tapes, we go to retreats, we, we put ourselves in the places that are going to support wisdom and compassion. Wisdom and compassion are the conditions that support our ability to open and let go.
Sometimes um, we may be sitting or not sitting, but paying attention. And we just feel this dense, solid dullness. You know, it doesn't feel spiritual. It doesn't feel loving. It doesn't feel preferable. But that is what is happening. And so often when we feel dense and slow and dull or whatever, not loving, our heart is closed, we will judge ourselves and make it even worse. So now I'm bad for feeling that. You know, we judge and we, we can go from judging to completely rejecting our experience. Wisdom says, oh, this is dullness. This is hard heart with no judgment. And simultaneously, like I said before, that kindness, the quality of, of kindness or compassion comes in and says, ah, oh, yeah. Compassion says it's, it's hard when we're closed. It's hard when we feel separate. And we learn to hold ourselves with compassion and love where we are. Wisdom and compassion. Maharaji, the great, great saint in India, Nimkaroli Baba, said, love is the most powerful medicine. And we all know this. We've all experienced it how many thousands of times. We're tight, solid, dense, stuck, (coughs) separate. And some form, either love coming from someone out there or from ourselves, some way we meet ourselves with kindness instead of judgment. And there's some opening. So we can provide ourselves with the environment of wisdom and kindness and then trust the unfolding happening in its own time. So the fourth point is that sometimes something is arising and it isn't about to let go. You've been mindful with it. You've named it. You've been interested in it. You've been curious. You've been loving. You've been compassionate. You've done it all. You've done up and down the list. And it's holding strong. You know, it isn't even budging. You know that one. So at that place, at that point, there's this thing that has been so helpful for me. Um, I actually first heard it about 20-some years ago from Jack, but actually before that I heard it from the Beatles. Let it be. The great mantra. Could we just let it be? So instead of this concept or this notion that we should let go, at a certain point thinking, I'm supposed to let go, creates more suffering since it isn't letting go. But this phrase, can I just let myself be, sometimes creates the space to allow, ah, can I be I can be with this, just this moment. I don't have to be with this the rest of my 25 incarnations, just this moment. So you may be sitting steeping in, you know, jealous revenge, an uncomfortable experience. And you don't want to be, and it's going on and on. And you don't want these images of bombing the house or whatever, you know, (laughs) ramming the car into their living room. You'd, you'd rather that not be what's filling your meditation, thank you, thank you. but it is. 
<laughs> and you can't stop it. What if you let yourself be and made room for jealous revenge, for really ugly, messy darkness? This is not what if you acted on that. That's not what we're recommending. But we're saying we can actually make room for even that. We can be present. We can become more and more like this clear, open sky. And this big, ugly, messy cloud comes along of jealous revenge. And we can let it be that in the sky... There's a big, messy cloud, and it will move by. There's some things we just can't fight. When we practice in this way, when we start making room for even this most difficult ugliness in ourselves, what we're doing is we're making room for our humanness for our human imperfections, of which we are all filled with. And in this process of making room for our own humanness, we naturally then become a space that has room for the humanness of others. Um, Many of you know that I, for many, many years, have led wilderness vision quests in the summer out mountains. And one year this unusually um, mature and bright, bright as in shining bright, um, 19-year-old came with a group of, of midlifers. And she completely melted us all down with her story, which is that she um, was the only child of a single mother. And when she was 16 years old, they found out that her mother had an inoperable brain tumor. And the night that the mom got that information, she's in the hospital, you can imagine how you might feel, knowing you're about to leave your child without any family. She had friends, but no other family. And they were very, very close. And um, she wrote her an incredible letter that night. And this letter became this young woman's most cherished, and still to this day is her most cherished possession, and it's also, in a certain way, her life Cohen or her, her life assignment, what this letter says. And her mother, um, it was a, I, I got to read the letter. It was a beautiful letter. And in one line, it sort of sums up, or she quoted someone else, I don't know who she was quoting, where she says, Great love must both take hold and let go. And this is a pretty high teaching for a 16-year-old. And she's still, you know, chewing on that years later. But this seems to be our human assignment. That to have a whole and fulfilling human life on this earth, we have to be willing to deeply care and connect and love. Whether or not we're in the monastery, we have to be willing to connect, all the while knowing that we will have to let go of the most beloved. That's just the deal here. Quite a deal. 
And because of that deal, it means that there are times and there are certain let-goes in our life that will require the process of time and grief, that will require the courage to grieve. Stephen Levine calls it the consequence of true love, grief, the courage to grieve. So some of my um, greatest teachers about letting go have been dying patients who never ever heard of the Four Noble Truths, but they learned they were in the crash course through this process that I mentioned earlier of letting go. And my mother was one of these people who I learned so much from in her dying process. And I know there's many, many of you who have also been with loved ones and friends through this process of uh, letting go and saying goodbye. My um, mother was a, you know, a great, nice, I mean, not a great as in famous, but a wonderful woman. You know, she had been a kindergarten teacher. Then she retired, and then she played a lot of bridge. You know, she, she was... Um, really involved and active and, you know, definitely always dressed perfectly and everything in the house. And, you know, she had fun uh, doing the the Southern California, you know, born to shop was definitely her phrase. She loved to dance and, you know, was, like I said, really active and involved in a lot of projects, a lot of people's lives. That was what she loved. And... um, this slow process of leukemia slowly took away, drained out all her energy. So she just had to let go and let go of what she had been identified with as who she thought she was, this super active person. She had to let go of all the projects and the various activities, letting go, letting go. Then she had to let go of her appearance her appearance really changed, and uh, she had to let that go, and the whole perfection around the house, letting go, letting go. And as it got you know, deeper into the process, um, she had to let go of, of having this life of taking care of my father and allow him to take care of her. That was the big let go. So one uh, December night, several years ago, um, I sensed that it was time that if we wanted to say our completion goodbye to her and really be sure that she heard us, that this was the time. I've worked a lot with many, many dying patients, and as you, many of you know, um, there comes a point where you're not completely sure quite what the patient is able to hear and be aware of. So I talked a little to my father about that, and then I went in myself, you know, to the room with her. And we talked and talked. I mean, we had a long time to do this. We had years to prepare for this, but this was it. And she was at a place where she could no longer speak, but she could definitely hear me, and it was clear as a bell that she was hearing and feeling. I touched her, and I thanked her, and I sang the songs, her favorite songs that we love to sing, and... I prayed with her and for her. I reminded her of the practices that we had been doing 
and would continue doing together through her process. And that, you know, I said goodbye. And then I left the room and I stood outside the door and eavesdropped on the most incredible conversation I've ever heard. My father went in there. And I should tell you that um, they were married for 55 years and that with all of their, you know, unenlightenment, they really loved each other. And they had really, really been there for each other through a lot, a whole lot. And um, his whole life, but especially after his retirement, she was really the center of his life. And, and it was time to say goodbye to the love of his life. Um, I also should say that my father um, was a good man, but he was never an outwardly spiritual man. So what I overheard was all the more um, stunning to me. And he didn't know that I was listening. And I'm so glad I was. Her name was Laura Lee. So he said... Um, Laura Lee, you've made me so happy for so many years. He said, I remember the first time I met you at San Diego State College. I felt so happy. And since then, I have been happy just being with you. We don't have to do something special. I've just been happy to be with you. And then he said, now I want you to know it would make me happy if you could let go. He said, it's, if it would make me so happy if you could be done with this whole struggle and just let go. And he said, these were his words, rest in the arms of God. Mm-hmm. And then he said, Lord Lee, wherever you go, I will be connected to you through our love. So I'll be fine. You go on. He really said, go ahead, I'll be fine. So he loved her enough to let her go. And it's what she needed because for about two weeks, the hospice nurses couldn't quite figure out what it was that was keeping her alive. And when I asked her, she said, I don't want to leave your father alone. So when he was really ready and he really let her go, it took two hours until she died. So we were right there, just my father and I, we had her at home, and we noticed that her breathing, you couldn't couldn't miss that her breathing had become very intense at a certain point exactly like a woman in labor. I've been with a lot of laboring women, and it was exactly the same feeling and energy. She was working. And so we just, like you do with a woman in labor, you're just with her, sort of like, yeah, go, you know. You're doing fine. That is exactly the feeling that we had in the room. And then after a little while, that breathing became calmer and calmer, And my father and I were just right next to her. And the breaths became farther apart. And she took this little inhale, 
and then this little exhale and then this big space and then just one last tiny little inhale and then just complete silence. It was completely peaceful. There wasn't any resistance. There was no drugs. There was no pain. There was just this expanding, silent peace. And as we sat in this extraordinary space together, my father and my mother's body and I, um, the room began to fill with this boundless love, this indescribable, expanding love. And this love that I'm describing is has no words, but... It's not an emotion. It was not an emotional love. It's completely... It was just blessing. Infinite blessing. And there was no question. It was... You couldn't miss the fact that my mother, my father, and I were sharing this most indescribable, holy mystery And as the hours went on into the night, the whole thing just got deeper and bigger and more and more. And then, as if all of this wasn't already completely blowing our minds, to coin a phrase. I mean, I had at least been meditating, you know, 25 years and had experienced various altered states. My father, you know, had never experienced anything, anything like this. And... Um, this thing began happening where she died, her mouth was um, stuck open and I wasn't able to close it but somewhere, like maybe a half an hour or even 40 minutes after the breathing stopped this radiant luminosity began to occur across her whole body and her face and her mouth at a, at a rate so slow that we couldn't see it happen, but it somehow closed itself, and this little Buddha smile, as though she was in the deepest rapture, came across her, and she became radiantly beautiful. After all this stuff, she did not look beautiful, I have to tell you, before she died. To my eyes, my dad saw nothing but beauty. But this was like the photographs when she had been so beautiful I'd seen before I was born when she was 25. And my father, whose mind was completely blown, is talking to her out loud in front of me like this was normal, saying, Laura Lee, look at you. You're so beautiful. You know, and as the night went on, it just, this whole event just expanded. It was, it was so beautiful. Um, finally, in the middle of the night, after profound kind of meditations and healings and dissolvings um, my father again talking to her said Laura Lee this is the most beautiful experience of my life 
and I know that you gave this to me as a gift. And he said, no matter how lonely or painful this may be without you, I will never, ever, ever forget this. And um, so, of course, this, this incredible event that I was, I think, just lucky to be near this thing they were doing together, I was in, sort of in the field of it, it didn't protect us from grief, you know, it didn't make us not miss her, but I actually think it helped, especially helped my father in a letting go. And it's, it's an amazing story. Believe me, um, I never would have dreamed that this particular death was going to happen to my mother. This was the bridge club, you know, person, the person with all the outfits, you know. And I know we can listen <laughs> to this, to this um, story, and for some people it can bring up... Um, a painful feeling like, why didn't my loved one get to have this? Or why wasn't I there with my loved one? Or why was it so difficult for my loved one? And, and I have to say there's no answer that I know of. Um, I've been at, present at many deaths. They are all completely as different as our lives. And it's a mystery. Death is a mystery. And every death is completely unique. And like I said, I would have never, ever dreamed that it would be, of all people, my mother, who would have this experience. So I don't tell this to you to have any sort of expectation or comparison, if any death that you may be attending or your own death. But more, I tell the story because it, it's really about letting go. And it points to something that's way beyond all our concepts, all our identifications. It points to the deathless. And there, every great teacher I've ever, ever heard of, uh, even Ajahn Jimnin, who was here a couple weeks ago, says, uh, all, they all say, we do not have to wait for some huge devastating illness. We do not have to wait for death to learn about the freedom that is possible in letting go. The, the truth, this third noble truth that the Buddha taught, freedom is possible in letting go while we're alive. That's the whole point of the teaching. We can practice. We can practice this process of letting go moment by moment. This um, this freedom is possible for us ordinary folks, even though we're not off in a foreign country living 2,500 years ago, us. The reason it's possible is that because what uh, Punjaji said is true. We are all made of this essential mystery. That's who we are when we let go of all the grasping and all the aversion. That is what remains. A poem. This is the end of a poem by Girta <clears throat> called The Holy Longing. 
now you are no longer caught in the obsession with darkness and a desire for higher lovemaking sweeps you upward. Distance does not make you falter. Now, arriving in magic, flying, and finally insane for the light, you are the butterfly and you are gone. And so long as you have not experienced this, to die and so to grow, you are only a troubled guest on this dark earth. So we come to spiritual practice to learn this mystery, how to die and so to grow. And each time that we just come back from some story we're in, in meditation, to this moment, we're practicing this great art of letting grow. And each time that we let go of some resistance and we just let ourselves be, and we're present and open with our experience as it is, we are practicing this letting go, letting go. And in time, we begin to recognize that what we are letting go of is our suffering or our separateness. And we begin to rest more and more in the great openness and ease of being. So I just finish with uh, two sentences, oh, one sentence from Stephen Levine. He says, When we let go of everything, only the truth remains, the vast spaciousness of our true nature, the ocean of love, the ever-shining. So you don't even have to change positions, but please, just for a few moments, please just close your eyes. (coughs) And for one moment, notice your belly. And just let go. (coughs) Let your belly soften. Allow your heart to be with yourself just as you are. 